calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tanana Do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Okay, here we are with the podcast. Hey. Oh, God, I I love this. This is so, they told me, we had a a consultant and we had a sound engineer at one point, and everybody told me that they didn't know of a way to create a sound bank on Zoom. And I was like, I do not accept this. So look at me, I got it all. I've got fast cars, I've got cartoon I've got all the noises. <laughs> you found just, workarounds. I There's found always a workaround. A hack. I found a hack. Well, there this you is, go. There you is, go. This is a really, really exciting podcast because we have a, a, a great guest, the author Paul Tremblay, who is a Bram Stoker Award winner, British Fantasy Award winner. He's written a book called The Cabin at the End of the World. That is just about to be released as a film by M. Night Shyamalan under another name that we shall not mention yet. But right now, all you need to know is The Cabin at the End of the World. That's the title. But before we bring Paul on, I would love for us to, you know, do what we do. Let's just catch up a little bit. Oh, that gets me going. Okay, see? Got to get your energy up. 
Usually I'm cutting you off in the middle of a sentence when I do that. So All the time. Um, Story of my life. I'm glad that we uh, we had a pause. So what is going on? Tell me what's new in your life, Penny. <laughs> well, this is the last week before we actually begin to work on this television. The ne- contracts have been negotiated. We know most of our responsibilities. We've seen the treatment for the series. Getting It's getting more real in that sense. So I, I've been spending... This week, and the last couple of weeks, really trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to do everything? We don't know exactly what time we're going to have to leave the house to get. No. And we live there. pretty far from everything. So That's everywhere right. we go takes an hour, basically. So if we've been using, if I'm, I'm used to getting up at 730 in the morning and I might have to get out the door by nine. Right. And so the question is, well, what? What can I do to take care of myself, make sure that our son is on track with, with his business and the things that he's doing there? And then exercising. You know, I can get the time to exercise in the morning, but my body isn't warmed up enough to really enjoy the process. So I figure I can do Tai Chi and I can do five Tibetans. I can meditate. You know, I can do my morning ritual during Tai Chi and I can do basic martial arts and I can do some abdominal work. And the truth is, if that's all I can do all day, as long as I'm moving forward with my abdominal work, I'll be okay. But if I can, when I get home, then I can do other things. But but that's just taking care of the physical aspect of things. We've also had some com- conversations about the emotional aspect. We're going to be under a massive amount of stress. Massive amount of stress. Even good stress, as we've said, is stress. That's right. That's right. It's the same thing. And the trick with stress is, as we said before, stress is not what hurts you. It's strain, the amount of stress that your body-mind cannot process healthfully. So the question is going to be, I mean, in life, they pay you for how much stress you can take without cracking. That's something I heard and really appreciate and really, really believe. So how can we step into this stress that we have voluntarily assumed? We have, you know, we, we, we have, we planned for this. We worked for this. This is something we absolutely want. How can we do this in the most healthful way possible without hurting our bodies or our, our careers, our minds, and certainly not our family? You know, these are, these are important considerations. So you're, you're part of this too. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going off by myself. Well, I, I have news. I'm going to be working on a TV series. Oh my God. <laughs> I did not know. Oh, yes, thank you. So I, you know, I have an email newsletter at tananarivelist.com and I just sent a, a newsletter out to my my list explaining that this was really, it's lucky that we got this, but it's also part of a plan. And those two things can be true. I mean, of course, yes. it's, extra, it's extraordinary luck at a time when a lot of Hollywood is downsizing and a lot of people are really having trouble pitching and getting their pitches past that next level to be brought in on what is a high profile project on a streamer and working with at least one person we know and really like. So yes, it's luck, but it was also a plan starting basically about 10 years ago. You and I were were living in Atlanta. And prior to that point, we had spent a lot of time in traffic doing meet and greets. Thank God that's over. Oh my gosh. Thank goodness. One good thing that's come out of COVID. Zoom meet and greets. Oh my God. We literally would have to set aside three hours a day to do a meeting. Right. Or someone might casually say, does it have to be a tiger? (laughs) Well, actually more than that. I mean, I think that a meeting would blow half a day. Oh, at least. You know, because it takes time to get there and then it takes time to get ready to go. And then you're there and then you have the meeting and then you have to come back and you're burned out. 
from all that because you twinkle, twinkle, twinkle at the meetings. You know, yes. you, you do a heightened version of yourself for right. the meetings. And that's an energy bump. And so, you know, if things went well, you're, you know, yippee. And if you get the feeling things didn't go well, well, that was a half the day down the drain for nothing. In traffic all the way home. Yeah. So we were living in Atlanta and believe it or not, we were missing that. We were missing <laughs> We were missing the daddy ate to the bar. <laughs> We were missing the opportunity to spend all those hours in traffic with, you know, 30-year-olds casually saying, does it have to be a tiger when, when that's all we had talked uh. about up to that point? But anyway, we we crowdfunded a short film called Danger Word with one of my best friends, Lucina Fisher, who was a previous guest on this podcast. And we've talked a little bit about Danger Word, but that was a big step for us to just proclaim that we were going to take control of our careers in Hollywood. And it did result in some good things, mostly though, I'd say on the emotional mental side, it just gave us a lot more confidence to have that producer, executive producer, produced screenwriter out of the way. Like we did that. I'd like to say something about luck. I mean, you never know where you're going to end up, but if you keep pitching pennies at a bottle, eventually a penny is going to go in. Mm. It's not luck that it happened. It's it's statistics that it should happen, but it's it's unpredictable the moment that it will happen. What you have to do is put yourself in a situation where you're constantly pitching those pennies. You're constantly doing the same things day after day after day after day because you know that on one level, it's simply a matter of statistics. You know, if you know that you you sell a vac- one vacuum cleaner for every hundred doors that you knock on, and you have to sell two vacuum cleaners a week, then you know you're going to have to knock on two hundred doors. Yeah. You know, on average, and so it's not it's luck in one sense about which door opens, but it's you getting out there and doing it over and over and over again. So I I think that one of the things that's incredibly important is how do you set yourself up to every single day write or pitch or network, or research, or whatever it is that you have to do that represents the stuff that you need to do so that when that when luck finally stops leaning against you, you, you get that chance. I mean, all I ask is that the world not go out of its way to stop me. And, you know, sometimes and it can feel that way. It really, well, it's an extraordinarily difficult and competitive field. I mean, who doesn't want to write for TV or write for movies or write books for that matter, you know, and all of those things are highly competitive. And the last thing we did that I think was very important in terms of planning was about four years ago, we created a five-year plan. And that was specifically related to the fact that almost all the screenwriting we did was adaptation. It was only when producers came to us and said, hey, I'm interested in this, that we would then try to get attached as screenwriters and sometimes write spec scripts or sometimes get paid to write scripts. And we said, you know what? We need to write more original scripts because we had a disappointment. We were not able to get attached. And I, the way I buried my irritation about that was to say we need to just write more scripts that are not attached to these books, original scripts. The Keeper, which was just nominated for an NAACP Image Award, was one of those scripts that came out of that. Your script, Mississippi Shuffle, was one of the scripts that came out of that. And we were really trying to lay a path toward not having to hustle in five uh, years. What, I want to make a slight correction here. Yes. Uh, when you say my script, Mississippi Shuffle, you mean oh, yes. lead on it. You you were deeply involved in in many, many different aspects no, that's true. of that I, and I on the rewrite it, of it. We're, I call it yours only because it was your heart script. I understand. Yeah, it's like your keeper was yours. It was your right, heart. Right, right, right. But, but we've, we've I was collaborated. involved with keeper and you were Absolutely. involved in Mississippi Shuffle. Thank this you is, for that correction. 
No problem. I think it's it's one of the things that I love about this show is we get to kind of do an, an autopsy, you know, on on what we've done in the past and it helps us understand where we are, what the game is, what the game board is, how we can use our particular sets of skills. You have a very you have a very particular set of skills that make you a nightmare for people trying to keep you out of Hollywood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I have a different set of skills and they complement each other and sometimes they they bump into each other. But what you have to t- keep taking action and then you have to learn what reaction you're getting from the world when you take those actions like a bat echolocating in a cave and then you keep making little corrections. Yes, absolutely. So we'll talk all about that. We'll talk, yeah, about we'll talk more about that. And we may even talk about that tomorrow, but let's get our guest on. We have a great, I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. I've only met Paul once and I'm trying to remember where it was. It was with Stephen Graham Jones and Ellen Datlow. So it was like this wow, amazing awesome place. horror gathering, but we all had such a great time that day. And it's, I've always felt like, oh, too bad we didn't all get to talk and, and get to know each other a little bit better. So what do you do? You invite him on the podcast. So Paul G. Tremblay has won the Bram Stoker British Fantasy and Massachusetts Book Awards and is the author of The Paul Bearers Club. That's his latest survivor song, The Cabin at the End of the World, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, A Head Full of Ghosts, The Crime Novels, A Little Sleep, and No Sleep Till Wonderland, and the short story collection Growing Things and Other Stories. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Entertainment Weekly Online, and numerous years best anthology. He has a master's degree in mathematics. We got to talk about that and lives outside of Boston with his family. Please do welcome Paul G. Tremblay. <laughs> Here he is. Here he is. Hey, thank you. He was really milking that crowd. (laughs) Sorry. Wow, what an amazing introduction. I've never had that much applause. Strolling in. Strolling across the stage. More than you've had, less than you deserve. Well, there are a million reasons to have you on the podcast, but the time peg, as we used to say in journalism, is that a, a new M. Night Shyamalan movie called Knock at the Cabin is opening very soon, next week. It is adapted from your novel, so we definitely want to talk to you about <laughs> that. But before we even get into that, what is it, Paul? You you, you have a master's degree in math. Yeah, You're on a year sabbatical from being a public math school teacher. Where does the horror of it all fit in? How did you <laughs> even get into horror? Why do you like <clears throat> horror so much? Yeah, it's hard to explain. I mean, the horror part's not hard to explain. I don't know if you feel the same way, Tanana Reeve and Steven. I'm not sure. I know, like, you've written a lot of fantasy. I don't know if you consider yourself a horror fan per se. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, both. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I'm primarily science fiction. She's primarily fiction, sorry, horror, yeah. but horror is a, is a dominant emotion. It, mm-hmm. it says nothing about the world in which it takes place. You can write science fiction horror. Right, for you know, sure. Or fantasy horror, anything else. So I, I love it. So like I was going to say, for me, it's usually like, how come you don't like horror? Because I mean, us horror people are, are so often asked, right. you know, why do you like that stuff? And honestly, for me, it's like my earliest memories as a kid, my earliest memories of entertainment. Um, so in, I've grown up in and around Boston and pretty much stuck here my whole life. And pre-cable television, there used to be a program on, you know, the UHF channel 56. You know, you'd have to go the other dial. And on Saturdays, they played Creature Double Feature. Yes. yes. And, the, and the first movie was a Godzilla movie, typically. And that's what, that was the draw for me. As, you know, like most, as most kids, I like dinosaurs. So Godzilla, to me, was just like a an extra dinosaur, essentially. Yeah. And then the second movie 
would be a horror movie. And, and, you know, looking back on it now, like as an adult, most of them are ridiculous, like bad, B, black and white, like Attack of the Killer Shrews, Attack of the Giant Leeches, anything with attack in the title. Those gave me nightmares. So I've always had like this real attraction, but also been very terrified of horror. Like as an adult, I still have my nightmares are, are like horror movies still. It's I don't know, somewhat embarrassing to admit, but at the same time, not, I guess, because that's, that's where it is. So for me, like, it's fun, but like, also, I think as an adult, what I really appreciate about horror when it's done well, and I think Stephen Graham Jones has said this, so I want to give him credit. It feels truthful. It feels more, when it's done right, it feels, it feels like you're, you're learning something about existence or about the world that, you know, people don't talk about in polite company kind of thing. True. So true. I mean, we could really just go off on that, but yes, absolutely. I, I'm there. There are ugly ideas coming in my head that I won't even uh, bring out into the light because we're having a fun time here. But you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. It's it's about truth telling. It's about the negation of the negation, as Robert mm. McKee would call it. Mm. Like when when it's just the worst possible thing you can imagine. And for me, it's about creating characters to sort of guide you through that and watch them rise to the occasion. They don't all survive. Yeah. But right. they rise usually in some kind yeah. of way. Do you start? I'm going to su- I'm going to suspect that you start with a premise, or at the very least, you certainly did with the the, the book that was that was, yeah. this movie was based on. You know, an unthinkable dilemma. Mm. You know, and then build a story around that. I mean, or do you start with dominant moods or images? How do you? What is your? Can you describe your writing process? Yeah, I mean it. it it can be different for every story, and I kind of try to make it different for every story. It's like you know, for like us, for writers who've been working for a long time, there's like that line I try to walk where it's, I want to make it feel new. So I'm excited, but also I don't, I also want to still have the confidence (laughs) left over from the previous, you know, successful attempts. And when I say successful attempts that they were actually published, right? So for me, it's always that balance. But typically if I'm looking for an idea, I keep, I keep notebooks and I brainstorm in them. You know, sometimes I've been lucky and ideas have fallen on my lap. Sometimes like with the Paul Bearers Club, that title just literally fell into my lap at school. And I was like, I have to write a book with this title. And that was how it started. You know, with The Cabin at the End of the World, I was actually flying back from Los Angeles. I was actually at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books that weekend. And while I was there, my editor rejected a novel proposal. And I was like, oh, well, I actually wasn't that bummed out because I wasn't in love with that proposal. So like, I'll try to come up with something new. And anyway, on the flight home, I just, I drew a little cabin in my notebook and I wasn't even paying attention when I did it. And I was like, oh. I instantly, because, you know, we th- I think horror all the time, <laughs> I thought of like a home invasion story because it's a cabin. And that's like my least favorite subgenre of horror, Oof. partly because it's partly because it's so realistic and it's so awful, so, right? So Agreed. scary. Agreed. So Absolutely. scary. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the nightmare. So the, what made me excited, I was like, oh, okay. Like Mr. Big Mouth, if you don't like home invasions, how would you write one? <laughs> and that was really how it started. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, that explains why. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'm going to admit something to you right now that I'm oh. a little um, embarrassed and almost hesitant to say <laughs> <laughs> because LeVar Burton said something very similar to me on the podcast when we had him on. And it's the kind of thing an author might feel some kind of way about. Uh-huh. But I was afraid to finish Cabin at the End of the World. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know, now, yeah. the caveat is I'm back in it. Yeah. 
and I'm planning to finish it before I see the movie because I, okay. I think it's sacrilege to do anything else. But as soon, <laughs> I mean, I was such a wimp, Paul, that when the home invasion mm. feeling aspect of the book started to unfold, I scurried away like a rabbit. And part of it is is actually, I think, an honor to you and that you had created characters I really, really cared deeply for. After Thank only a, a couple of chapters, I was deep in there. I was all about this queer male couple, their adopted Asian daughter. I believed them. I love them. I write a lot of child protagonists too. So I loved the scenes in her point of view mm. and just the idea of experiencing what I thought was sure to be a bloodbath. Through <laughs> <laughs> that point of view, I wimped, I completely wimped out and I'm so ashamed and I'm so embarrassed. No, no shame. <laughs> But you know, I'm I'm back in it, and I'm I'm yeah. already I'm not gonna. There's nothing spoilery. I'm not gonna yeah. spoil it. Well, I only talk about what's in the trailer. Yeah. Well, I only talk about what's in the trailer. But you know, I think part of what got me was that I've never seen characters like that in a horror novel. I've mm. never seen a queer male married couple with an adopted Asian daughter, and as as marginalized characters, and as a marginalized writer <laughs> a person myself. Mm. I was, it was just feeling it. I was just like in it and feeling it really deeply. How did you, how did you decide to use these characters? And I'm glad that actually yeah. in the adaptation, they have stayed true to the novel in that sense. It's a gay male couple and they're, oh, they have to, yeah. but, but what, how did this come to you? So the cabinet, the end of the world, once I started getting into it, the two novels before that, a head full of ghosts, which is really the one that broke me. And then there was one in between called the uh, disappearance of devil's rock. Those two previous novels featured sort of families in distress or, you know, families where, you know, horror pressure, but also real world pressure was really crushing down on them. And both of those previous novels used a supernatural, ambiguous element. So when I had the idea for Cam, I was like, oh, this isn't like a trilogy of books, but I really like the idea of these three books making sort of like a thematic arc or being connected by, hey, here's another family, you know, and, and their sort of supernatural ambiguity is like ramped up to like the metaphysical level, right? Is an apocalypse happening or not? Right. And that 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 book felt really important to me in a number of ways. One, like one, it was gonna be my seventh novel. And as a math teacher, I don't know. I, I can't help but think of numbers. <laughs> and it was hard not it was hard not to look back. Like when I first started writing in the mid-90s, very much as a hobbyist and not knowing what the hell I was doing, because I was a math math major. My first readers, my consistent first readers, besides my wife, were my cousin Michael and his husband Rob. You know, and I'm friends with them as well. And mm -hmm. my and my aunt Mary, who's like a second mom to me, and her wife Debbie. Oh. So I, I wanted once I said, you know, I'm going to choose, you know, two dads, and I, as a way to sort of honor not only their experience because they're they're both older queer couples. You know, they've lived through the '80s. You know, my my cousin Michael, you know, is HIV positive, but thankfully, oh. you know, he's been able to control it through medication. So you know, they live through, you know, some of the darker times of of the queer experience in terms of, you know, the AIDS outbreak. And I don't know, I, sh I wanted to both show, you know, show them some love, like for all the help they gave me as a writer, but also honor them in some way with those characters. So, and I, I actually, the only, geez, the only, that's not true. I had a couple of beta readers and one of them was my cousin, Michael. I brought him back for that novel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you had any pushback on it? I mean, from fans? You know, I, I'm sure there is, but like there hasn't been a ton like you know directly towards me. I think there's going to be more now when the movie comes out. <laughs> oh um, yeah, honestly. oh joy, right? Oh, yeah. Joy. <laughs> Which I mean, because you know, when the book came out in 2018, it was a little bit of a different time too. I mean, there wasn't sort of yeah, there wasn't sort of like the you know the big whale of 2020 of all the social injustice that really sort of exploded mm -hmm. at the point when that novel came out. 
you know, most people, you know, especially writers have been really gracious and been very complimentary about the couple, which, you know, has been very gratifying, you know, and obviously I don't think I did a perfect portrayal, but, you know, I tried to you know, do the best I, as I could you, and approach all those characters with empathy. Look, if you know people and you love them and you have them reading your work, I don't see a big problem with human yeah. beings being able to empathize across lines of gender or race or sexual identification or whatever. I think that you start with the assumption of humanity right. and then you build yeah. from there. And right. if you, if you obviously start from a, from a heart space connection. It's hard to imagine you're going to get that too wrong, especially if you had them read it. <laughs> right. right. No, right. right. Well, this is no, this like I'd be curious. I mean, to your answer, I mean, because it's easy, you know, as the you know, cisgendered white male, you know, talking about like writing about characters who aren't him. You know, I've had many a discussion, particularly in the last five years or so. And the guideline I try to go by, and I'm not saying I'm right or should be doing it this way, but you know, because I, I, I want to write other, I want to write representative characters. And I think as long as I'm not trying to tell the story of their culture, because that's not my story to tell. I should be okay, or I hope to be okay. That's not to say I can't screw up, because obviously I could. But you'll that's sort of the guideline I try to happy. go by. There's yeah. always going to be someone who feels like you should not, or you didn't do it right. Right. But I think that you're on the right path. You know, I've you know I've read hundreds and hundreds of books with white writers who represented black people in a perfectly fine way. I had no yeah. problem with that. And of course, I've also seen it done really badly well <laughs> yeah so so this is a great time to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors but when we come back and stick around we're going to talk about what it's like when you find out that the great filmmaker m night Shyamalan wants to adapt your novel see you on the other side okay we're back with paul tremblay talking about cabin at the end of the woods that was adapted to the new M. Night Shyamalan film, Knock, what is it called? Knock at the Cabin. Oh, thank you. Knock, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't get the original title out of my head. So, Knock at yes. the Cabin. Yeah. What set the stage? Tell us about that. The, the, reminding the process business. that you went through. <laughs> you get a call. What, what Set the stage for us. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. You guys opened the show talking about like the 10-year journey with, with the television show that you're in. Congratulations, by the way. Thank um, you. That's amazing. You know, similarly, like the cabinet at the end of the world was first optioned in t late 2017, like six months before the book even came out. Oh, that's uh, great. That's yeah. always good. No, which was very cool. Film Nation, you know, was and is the optioning producer. You know, I was so happy to work with them. So it was sort of like the typical thing where it takes like a year or two for, for even like a screenplay to get written. So I did eventually see the the screenplay written by Michael Desmond and Steve Sherman. Geez, I hope I didn't mess up their names. Let you see the screenplay. That is not a given. No, it is not a given, especially, you know, in 2017. It's like, you know, who was I to make any sort of contractual demand? So that was very nice of Film Nation to show me the screenplay and actually ask for notes, even though contractually they didn't have to listen to any of them. They might have regretted it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So like around like 2019, it felt like things were starting to pick up steam. They had hired a director, but they were trying to thread a needle with all these directors didn't have a lot of time. It kind of has to happen soon or not because they're going to do something else. So like the summer of 2019, right before the directors left, I actually had a funny call with the directors like, yeah, we had a weird call with M. Night Shyamalan. Like, we don't know how we heard about it, but like, you know, he wants to talk to us about maybe producing it. And that was the first time I heard his name. Wow. And so I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> because I've, and I, I say that not flippantly, but because, you know, I'd have other books. I'd had, I'd had other books optioned. And, you know, everyone tells you the most exciting names and like, 
Yes. And then like you hardly ever hear from anyone ever again. So like I've I've been a little bit inured to to the exciting names. Like I'll believe it when I see it kind of thing. So the directors fell apart. And then it was like for a year, like a whisper, oh, I'm not still, he might be interested in producing it. But then about a year later, it became, oh no, he wants to do it. He wants to actually direct it. (gasps) And he has a, and he had a a deal in hand with Universal. So that's when I was like, oh, it's essentially... (laughs) If he wants to make it, it'll get made because he has a film deal in hand. So then it was, we had to wait for his prior movie for him to finish old and for that to come out. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of waiting, but like once November, the fall of 2021 rolled around, it was like, nope, he rewrote the screenplay. We're going to film in the spring. You know, I took a phone call with him in November. That was probably the first time I believed it was going to be a thing. Was when when I, he was on the phone. <laughs> when he was on the phone. Yeah. And that was wild. I mean, it's hard not to be like a fan. Like in my head, it was like, geez. I saw The Sixth Sense in the late 90s, and I was barely uh, a writer then, you know? And perfection. Then, yeah, that movie all is. these years perf- later. Why, do, do people call him M or Knight or what? Knight. Yeah, his Knight. friends call him Knight. Yeah, he prefers yeah. Knight. Yeah. Knight. Okay, good to know. <laughs> Taking notes. If yeah. I run into him in a hallway, Knight. <laughs> so, did you get to read that draft or no? I did. It was wow. funny. I got to go to set for two days in oh. May, which was amazing. And then, like, when I got to ask, did did yeah. he change your ending? So you know, for don't tell us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so what I'm saying for now is, which I think is pretty vague. I mean, the short answer is yes. I would say the first two acts of the movie are very much the book, and then the third act of the movie definitely departs from the book. So okay. people people who have read the book will still be there'll be tension in the film. You won't you won't be sure exactly what's going to happen. Gotcha. Got it. Got it. Yeah. See, it's, a, it's a fantastic setup. You know, okay. I can joke about it all I want to. You know, <laughs> you know, my 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 joke would be, well, wait a minute, this is a constructed family. The guys aren't related to each other. They're not blood related to the girl. So how about they make the intruders part of their family? You're all family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never thought of that loophole. I thought I got to tell you, in all honesty, Paul, as I'm as I'm finishing the book and I'm I'm listening to the audio because that's how I, I like to read a lot. I was thinking to myself while they're making this pitch, like they're so passionately making this pitch. I'm like, you know what? If this happened to me, even if I could see glimpses of what was going to happen, I might be willing, might be willing to sacrifice my cat. That's it. <laughs> That's yeah. it. That's as far as I'm taking it. It's a tough one. It is. Yeah. yeah. I'm, it's fine. I'm, I'm going to be interested you know, see what the reaction is, because when I wrote this book, I, I did, besides the story itself, I started with like, not a political agenda necessarily, but I started the book writing it in earnest the summer of 2016, the, you know, the primaries of Trump and in Hillary Clinton. And then I probably had 50 pages written when Trump was elected. And that that really affected the book too. It changed the ending in my mind. So like one of the things I really wanted the book to represent was I wanted I wanted the reader to feel I wanted the book the feelings to represent the the anxieties we were feeling in 2016 or or for you know the dawn of Trumplandia or or I should say the reveal because it's always been there. The reveal of of Trumplandia. And that was definitely tied up in the book. So now it's you know, how many years later, geez, six, seven years later, we've been through 2020, we've been through the pandemic, you know, so it's a, a different kind of, oh, a different kind of vibe, you know, <laughs> it almost feels like I'm looking back to 2016, not like, like, geez, like we had no idea, like we thought it was going to be bad. We had no idea yeah. how bad yeah. it was or is, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm, um, when I actually see the movie, I, I have read the screenplay. So I was a long answer to your, your question, Steve. They sent me a link that was like, once I clicked it, it lived for like four hours and then it in my laptop, and then it in my laptop self-destructed but i, I read it in time <laughs> that's well, that's, that's great well yeah. i mean looks... go ahead t 
Well, okay. First, I wanted to say, why don't you give it the spoiler-free Yeah, give us an elevator pitch. Yeah, so I guess I usually describe essentially the first chapter because, you know, for the book, I was definitely very protective of spoilers. Yeah, so so they're, you know, two married men and their adopted daughter are vacationing in northern New Hampshire, sort of, you know, purposefully unplugged, you know, out of cell phone range because I want to have a horror novel. You know, so they're, you know, they're at a very remote camp on, on a lake. When is seven going on eight and she's out front playing in the grass? And a strange giant mountain of a man, you know, shows up and he's, he's dressed a little bit strange, certainly for, for, you know, for the woods, he's got like a dress shirt on and nice and jeans and, and nice shoes. And uh, he, he befriends when, and then three other strangers show up carrying very disturbing looking homemade weapons. And, and Leonard tells when, you know, you have to get your, your parents and I'm sorry, but you can have a really tough decision to make. You have to help us prevent the end of the world. So in the book, you know, I, I am certainly trying to play off the the fears, the ideas that whenever we turn on the television or look at our cell phones, it feels like there's an apocalypse happening or an apocalypse in slow motion. You know, and this is not a spoiler to say that in the book, you know, I really try to play it, balance it. Like, is an apocalypse happening? Is is there not an apocalypse happening? Is one of the, is one of the questions of the book. Um, I'm terrible at pitching my books. That's why. I no, no, no. Well, you don't. That's have why I have agents. <laughs> <laughs> you you don't have to pitch it because you've already. Yeah, that's right. As long that's as true, you're good right. at writing them, it doesn't matter if you can pitch them. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that's the premise, and we didn't want people to get lost. And then Steve, you yeah. have a question. No, I don't really remember what the question was. It just has to do with it is. I think that there are some premises that you hear them and you think to yourself, I have no idea if. This is going to be dependent upon how they how well they do it, and the other premises where they're so strong that you can almost anticipate. No, this is going to work. The only question is how well is it going to work? Does he have a last act that allows me to walk out? How does he want me to feel when I walk out of the theater? I don't know. You know, I don't know yet. And that that feeling of dread and hope and so forth. That's all set up in your first chapter. It's all set up in the elevator pitch for your story. So, I mean, I, I've got to ask the question, when you write stories, is there, a, do you tend to write stories that have a kernel, that have kernels that strong? Because that's really, really strong, man. Well, thank you. Um, no, I think this book is, you know, certainly different in terms of its central dilemma, like that central question that hangs over everything. So I think that was, you know, fairly unique. I would say typically I, I have an ending when I start and a begin and a, I'm sorry, I have a beginning and an ending typically. Mm-hmm. And the ending might be a little bit shadowy or vague, but, and then like the right, the, the real work for me is how do I get from A to Z? Yeah. So like, you know, I, I sort of boil it down maybe to go back to like our, 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 what, you know, what is a horror story? Like we were talking about at the beginning, especially when I'm writing novels, I like to think of a horror story as, you know, this is very basic, but it's a reveal of a truth, right? Any story, any work of art is a reveal of a truth. And in a horror story, it's a pretty terrible truth. You know, it could be personal, societal, universal. Mm-hmm. And my favorite stories, and going back to what Stan Reeve was saying about the characters, I like to have like a big reveal about two thirds of the way through, uh, or the big reveal of what the central horror is. And then my favorite horror stories ask like the hardest questions. What decisions are those characters going to make now? How do they live through this? How does anybody live through this? And to me, you know, I think art tries to answer all those questions, but horror can get at those, those questions, I think in really interesting ways. Yeah. Certainly if those questions have to do with fear, you know, and I think the best horror is, is fear about something that you love. I think that that's why Stephen King has been so phenomenally successful. I, I personally consider him to be the great storyteller of our time, but that he knows what we love. 
Mm. He understands families. He understands small towns. And then he brings something in that places those things that we love at great risk and then plays it out. So horror definitely goes there. It's almost like it's designed. It's like a guided missile straight into right. the, the, the place in your heart where you hold fear. Yes. And speaking of Stephen King, didn't he blurb Head Full of Ghosts or am I misremembering that? Oh, you mean on April 19th, 2015? <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to tell me that story. How did that come about? Oh, that's yeah. Every that's actually a dream. really great story. So <laughs> A Head Full of Ghosts came out June of 2015. You know, I, I, I tried to get a book to him. Like I did have an email for his assistant and she was like, hey, this is great. But to be honest, He's got this room full of hundreds of books. He walks through and picks one by luck. So just so you know, like the odds are pretty slim. But unbeknownst to me, a couple of other writers, friends who were friendly with Stephen told him, hey, we read this book. We think you would really like it. And so I had heard that, but then like nothing happened for a few months. I was like, ah, you know, he's so busy. So now it's, as I said, April 19th. It's hot out. I was moving furniture, which always, and the you know, school's coming for me, like August is the Sunday of months, right? Like I'm sort of bumming out because school's almost here. And then my my friend saw the tweet first. My phone was blowing up, as they say, right? And I saw the tweet, and I'm not embarrassed to say I got teary-eyed when I saw he, wait, he wait, tweeted. Wait. He tweeted the blurb? He, well, yeah, so, like, because the book had already been out for a couple months. He tweeted, oh. a head full of ghosts by Paul Trumbly scared the living hell out of me, and I'm not easy to scare. Wow! Um, yeah, and because of how he said it and how he framed it, that tweet, like, ran like wildfire. And, and he gave the book a second life and, a, you know, a, an immeasurable boost to my career. So yeah, Ooh. I was like, I, got I became a reader because of Steve and never mind a writer. Sure. So I, so I stopped moving furniture. I went to my, this is an adult podcast, right? I went to my refrigerator, yes. got, got some beer and just opened my laptop and threw myself a one man party watching people <laughs> <laughs> react to the tweets. Watching the retweets, the quote yeah, tweets. I'm wonderful. pretty sure I saw that tweet as a matter of fact. <laughs> have you, have you had a chance to, around. to meet him and thank him in person? Not in person, but in email. Like he's been super. So we exchange emails quite a bit. What's so I've never had a chance name? to meet him in person. Pinky but he's, he's he's wonderful. He's super super nice guy. So yeah. gracious. You know, so down to earth. Yeah, actually. So he he blurbed and read Cabin early to bring it back to Cabin really quickly. Not a spoiler if you've seen the uh, if you've seen the trailers, <laughs> but like uh, six months before the book came out, there was an earthquake off mm. the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, which is what happened in the book. Mm. you know thankfully nothing you know there was no tsunamis nothing happened but i just got this like two-line email from steve and he said earthquakes off the Aleutian islands quick sacrifice somebody <laughs> <laughs> oh well like, yeah. so y'all are just Thanks, playmates steve. at this point you're just <laughs> hanging yeah. out with stephen king through the email i yeah, see how it is email. i see yeah. how it is well yes that's so great paul that is <laughs> that is such a great story. The other fun thing about the adaptation is the casting. Oh, you know, yeah. I'm a big Dave Bautista fan, and it's it was that kind of surreal as the names were rolling in? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Like, it, and Dave was the first one to roll in. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, that's, you know. He has the makings of a fine actor about him. Oh, absolutely. What I can say from being on the set for two days, I think the performances are going to be amazing. And I got to talk to to most of the actors and you know, they they definitely have the the emotional sort of heart core of the of the book in mind, and they all read the book, which is really cool. Oh. Wow. And, and David is one of the biggest human beings I've ever stood next to. <laughs> he's my height; I'm six four, but like you know, two hundred sixty pounds of muscle compared to yeah, my yeah, he's, he's a genuinely lethal human being. But my <laughs> understanding is he's got a heart to match. Yes, but Jonathan Groff in particular, Ben Aldridge, Nikki Amuka Bird, and 
um, Abby Quinn, those four, I spent quite a bit of time with hanging out in between scenes and talking. And they were so gracious with their time when they could have been just like, you know, relaxing or maybe working on lines. But, you know, they 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 gave their time for me while I was there. And I'm very appreciative. Wonderful. That is really great. Did you get any of the bug while you were on the set thinking, I wonder if I should write screenplays or are you just happy to to collect the check and, and keep it moving? <laughs> No, I've, I've definitely a little, I've, I've been sort of like trying to make slow inroads, like, you know, prodding around, maybe trying to write a screenplay. Although oddly, <laughs> the, I had just, before the set visit, I had just started my next novel, which is called Horror Movie, a novel. Yes, <laughs> so, I saw that. That's a so great the, title. So the visit to the set was actually quite very helpful to that book. It was good timing. If it yeah. gets converted, maybe you call it Horror Novel, a movie. That'd be amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, ah, there you it's, go. it's all in the marketing. Oh, I like it. I wish I, I wish I could have found my symbol in time. My sound effects are never ready uh, when I want them. This ain't live. <laughs> <laughs> that was more of a laugh than maybe you needed for that, but <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that funny. But anyway, this is just so fun talking to you. I know it's late on the East Coast and we, we don't want to keep you up all night, but I was I'm really excited at the chance to get you on the podcast. Oh, I guess, my pleasure. Do we want to talk about the the balance part? Do you have a well, question? Well, I think that, that, yeah. So tell me, Paul, in the yeah. midst of all of this, Strom und Drang, and the writing of the books and raising a family and being a teacher, how do you keep your balance? Because that really is the thrust of the show. How do people stay sane in the midst of the creative flow, because there are an awful lot of people who have their their creative endeavors have destroyed their lives. You know, they, yeah. they they fall off the edge of the world. So you seem to have your head on pretty straight about these things. <laughs> yeah. you know? So let's just, yeah. assuming that is true. Yeah, you don't have any big confessions to make? How do you stay safe? Yeah, that's hard to answer. I mean, it's fine when when you guys open the show. Like you mentioned, good stress is still stress. I think both of you are, are Tanana Reeve said it and. You know, it's definitely these last few years have been super exciting, but like, I feel like the stress levels related to the writing business have sort of increased quite a bit. So I'm just finding my ways around it. Luckily, you know, my family is the best, you know, they're so you know loving and supportive. It's fine. I'm sort of transitioning too, as my kids are getting older. Like my son is a senior out in LA at Occidental. And actually he's oh. a music music production major. Maybe he can help give you some more sound effects. Nice. <laughs> and my daughter is a senior in high school and she's about to go off to college next year. So, you know, I think it'll to maybe combat the emptiness feeling. It'll be good to have the writing thing to work on. So uh, for me, the weird part was like, I didn't start messing around with writing until I started teaching. So it was like this 25 year sort of journey of writing and teaching together. They were so intertwined. And part, part of the reason why like, I never quit teaching was one, I liked having the economic safety net Heck and yeah. getting my crappy health insurance through school. <laughs> yeah. You know, but two, like I was a little bit worried. It's like, oh, I mean, I think there's some way in which my creative life is is sort of like weaved in between the teaching part of it. Can you um, can, can you mm, go more deeply into that? That's a I very like interesting that. comment. Would you please yes. no one yeah. has ever gone there before? Would you please sure. go there a little bit? So one, like, not that I'm an energy vampire sucking the life out of my students, although I think some would claim I do. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> You're not, yeah, being around high schoolers for, for as a writer has always been a wonderful, amazing vo- a lesson in voice. Insofar, like at the slang at my school, because I teach at like a small school. So I would notice, you know, every three to four years, there would be this, you know, this slang. And the slang could be, you know, nationwide, especially now with social media and everything. You know, there's nationwide slang for the youth culture, but there's also like sort of, you know, New England, Massachusetts regional slang. You, 
and even the town slang, but even there's the words that were only those kids at school were using. Mm-hmm. And it was so neat to see that like l- the language changed because like three or four years later, the kids who were younger didn't want to use the same words the older kids were using. Maybe one or two, they would want to use something else, but that meant like the same thing. Can you give so, us an instance of this like, linguistic shift? Uh, so man, like in 2016, like what was big at my school where kids were like used the word hardo quite a bit. Which is mm. sort of like a universal teenager thing, like you're working too hard. Like, you know, it's uncool to work hard. So they would say hardo. Oh. And they would have like hand symbols they would point at them. So that was one, but like hardo is is sort of gone from the lexicon of my school. Although like the idea of now, like eight years later, no one says hardo at school mm-hmm. where they used to all the time. And that's the one that sort of jumps, uh, you know, jumps mm-hmm. out the top of my head. But like, you know, I put all that slang, I would probably have to go back and read my book. I'm terrible at remembering stuff I put in my book. But in my my book, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, there's a lot of 2015, 2016 slang that I lived in there. And I actually used two of those characters again in Survivor Song, which was written four years later. Mm-hmm. So they get, they're older, they get to use different slang. So I bet it would be kind of fun if I compared, <laughs> you know, the, the conversations that those teenagers have, because they're definitely different, or at least in have, how they presented it. Do you have any daily rituals? Do you exercise, meditate, anything like that in order to, you know, that, you've got a stressful day coming up or yeah. something stressful has happened and you feel a little off center. How do you get back on center? So the, the last few years, I, I definitely exercise, you know, pretty frequently, you know, I'll take my dog for like a 45 minute walk. Mm-hmm. I wish I could still play basketball, but my knees are junk. <laughs> so like <laughs> yeah. when I was at my school, I, I coached the JV basketball team too. So I would play with the kids frequently, but now that my knees and back are getting cranky, my walk with my dog is the, is the cardio part of it. And then I'll do yeah, about 45 minutes of stretching, push-ups, stuff like that. And, I, and I'll do that every day. So yes. now that this year I've been working from this year, I have a year off of teaching. So my schedule has been, I'm writing in the morning and then I'll have lunch and take the dog for the walk and do the exercises. And then maybe do some editing in the afternoon to kind of break up the day like that. That sounds great. That year is going to fly by. Oh, it already is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we'll see. I, I understand. I teach too at UCLA and I feel the same way about like wanting to let go of my cold dead hands. But at a certain point, I think in a lot of writers careers, especially when they start to really take off, you get to that point where you can't really do both as effectively. Yeah. anymore. So we'll see if you get to that point. Do, no, do you I, want to get to that point? Do you want to write full time? I think so. But like, again, I'm not 100% sure because, you know, I have some, you know, really great friends who are writers full time. And, you know, I mentioned having the the economic safety net of teaching. Um, like, I don't know, it's a different, like, as a writer, like I've gone through different stages, like, oh, it's weird now that I have a contracted, a contracted book, that's a different pressure. Mm-hmm. Or I wrote a successful book. Now this is a different kind of pressure, like to write like the next one. I'm not sure, like, you know, adding like, oh, I have to, you know, do my share of of the household finances solely through writing. You know, that's a, you know, and I don't know, like it's the, a lot, the, the publishing it's a lot. industry is so fickle. Like it could, you know, so it, it is primarily in the a financial yeah. concern. And I, I mean, do. Li- you, I mean, I like teaching, though. I, you know, I must say, yeah, I that's that's like kind teaching. of what I was wondering. Let's see, if you had enough money, that money was not the issue. Do you think you'd still enjoy teaching some? Yeah, but if I had enough money, I would sit in the couch and watch all the shows and movies I don't get to watch. <laughs> <laughs> True. Let's no, just keep it real. I, I do, <laughs> no, there are days I definitely miss teaching. You know, I miss being there. How much? That's tell true. us a little bit about your writing routine. So it's funny, like when it, when I was much younger and learning to write, 
you know, I didn't have a ton of time for me. It was like, if I can squeeze in an hour a day, that's great. And it became all about time management for me, you know, especially, you know, when my kids were younger and I was teaching and at my school, they make, you know, most of the faculty coach too. So Mm. sometimes I would write, if I had a free period, 45 minutes, boom, I didn't have time for a writing ritual. I would instantly be able to just to get into it. But I sort of trained myself to be that way. I wrote a huge chunk of a novel, taking my son Cole to a baseball clinic I was in a big cavernous, like, you know, field house. There were kids throwing baseballs around and I had headphones on and I wrote, because I had to be there for two hours. Like I had absolutely, it was different than, you know, if he was playing a game, I would watch, but this was just practice. It was drills. So I kind of missed that, those skills. I feel like with the advent of social media, that takes up way too much of my writing time. And I'm trying to cut more of that out, frankly. You were pretty quick to reach on Twitter, I got to (laughs) say. I know, too quick. Too quick. Yeah. So Steve, like I am sort of like, I feel like I'm continually trying to struggle with the new balance or or finding what the new balance is. Yeah. I think that once you understand, you know, there's something that you want to accomplish and then you say that there is, what is the kind of person who can accomplish this? And what, what do they do every day, day after day? So mm-hmm. it's to do the, to be the person who can do the things that will take you to the destiny that you want. And for everybody, it's going to be different. And one of the things you have to do is to learn how to ad- ad- adjust your stress level up and or down, depending on whether or not you're under too much stress or whether you're bored. Okay. Mm. And that, that balance, you've mentioned the thing balance many times and, you know, rolling right into a discussion that we always do it about this, about this point, we chose Tai Chi as the physical discipline in the system because of the fact that it has thousands of years of, of Taoism baked into it. That notion of the, the full and the empty, the hard and the soft left and right, yin and yang. Mm. And we combined that with a morning ritual, which is affirmation plus movement to become something that we call incantation. That, you know, when you're, when you say every day and every way I'm getting better and better, that's one thing. But if you're walking with your dog and one of the things you're trying to do is improve your body, then you're saying that while you're doing the movement is actually accomplishing the thing. So when the demons in the back of your head shut up, uh, speak up and say, this is nonsense. This doesn't work. Who are you kidding? You actually get to see that the voices in your head aren't you. The voices right. in your head are not telling you the truth. So what we've done in the you know life writing program, the fire dance Tai Chi program, is created something where we take some ancient technology and combine that with some fairly modern neurophysiology and motivational and sports psychology to create a program that takes 10 to 15 minutes every day and takes care of all the basic things you need to do in terms of taking care of your body and in your emotions and your mind. And, you know, people can check out this program at firedancetaichi.com. Tanana, what, what's your experience with it, Ben? Well, I will say I am a new Tai Chi student. Living with Steve has been an experience. First, he got me into yoga. Then he got me into kettlebells and meditation. (laughs) And I was perfectly happy just watching him do Tai Chi on his own without, you know, having anything to do with it. But when this course, there's something about the digital download modules and being able to just watch the videos on the screen where it's like, it's not you, it's my Tai Chi, my Tai Chi teacher. And I have just really enjoyed it. I find that it, it, it does help me feel more balanced, both in body and in mind. It's helping me realize that I need to work those memory muscles in terms of 
muscle and movement. You know, I, I've never been in like, for instance, a dance troupe where I had to learn choreography and Tai Chi is sort of like a, a form of a and it's interesting to embrace this this new part of my life. So I would just suggest not just trying to, you know, sell to Paul, but anyone who's having joint issues, knees, hips. I, I've been having, I'd had some stiffness in my hips. Tai Chi, if you look it up, don't believe me and don't believe Steve. It has amazing medical properties. So check it out at www.firedancetaichi.com. Thank you so much again to our guest, author Paul Tremblay. It's been so exciting to have him on the show. Yeah, and I lost my applause bank, but whatever. No, just you know, we'll Paul. Just, you know, just just all the success in the world. I hope the movie is wonderful. I hope it opens whatever doors you're looking to open and leads you to whatever future you envision and you hold in your heart. Absolutely, thank you. That's and so everybody, listeners, thank you so much for listening to the show. Please share. Please subscribe. Please leave us a voicemail. If you look under the listing, you'll see a way you can leave us a voicemail. But definitely go out and be the hero or heroine in your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. (laughs) You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.